Amen. You can have a seat today. I'm so glad that you're with us. You've joined us. It's pretty amazing that we have a God that if you're here today and you're exhausted, God is eternal and he doesn't tire. If you're here today and you're broken, our God is not broken. He is put together. He is perfect. If you're here today and you're lost, let me just say that God is looking for you, right? We have a God who can do miraculous things, who can do amazing things in our hearts and in our lives. And so I'm so glad you're here today to worship and to glorify him. We're continuing a series called Gentle and Lowly. It's based on a book by Dane Ortland titled Gentle and Lowly. And so hopefully you were with us last week. If you weren't, we talked about God's very heart for us. And we found that in Matthew 11, chapter 28, or chapter, Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly at heart. He says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My burden is light. That is an invitation from Jesus for us to run to him because that is exactly who he is at heart. That's how he feels about us. He's a God that we can approach. He's an intimate God that we can run to in our lives. And in fact, he wants us to. I love in that passage in Matthew 11, he says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And last week we talked about this yoke and this idea. But what we humans, we want to live a life without any yoke, don't we? Like there's this idea of like, oh, well, I'm under this yoke of sin and, and away from Jesus Notice how Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I'll take your yoke away from you. He says, no, I'm going to transform it into an easy, light yoke, meaning that the yoke is good for us to give us direction so that we have someone to follow, so that we're not just wandering wherever we want like a kid playing right field, right? I have experience with that. <laughs> Jesus says, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's saying, come to me because you need me. And I'm telling you today, today we are looking at something that shows our greatest need of Jesus. Today we are going to be looking at how Jesus meets us in our sinfulness. How Jesus meets us in our sinfulness. Now, I noticed a few of you squirming a little bit because the word sin is a loaded word in our culture today. We live in a very relativistic age. We all know that, where everything's right and wrong according to your own thoughts and desires. And so, because our culture really struggles with sin, our culture has developed three usually main views of how people kind of approach sin or how they view sin in their life. And so let's look at those a little bit today. First, the first view of that we hear a lot that people have of sin is that I'm a good person and so sin doesn't really affect me. This is a moral view of ourselves. People who have this view think sin is not a big deal because they are good and moral people. 
Sure, we're not perfect. You may mess up a lot, but you would not label yourself a sinner. And because everything's relative, then that means you truly believe you're not a sinner. You're a good moral person, and good is good enough. That's one view many people have of sin. We hear often, I'm good enough. Another view of the culture when it pertains to sin is on the flip side of thing, and you think, I'm the worst person ever. This is the shame-filled view. This is the view where you think, I am so terribly bad that there's no way that a God would ever want me. This is the view that people think that God is this dictator looking to smite those who do the smallest thing wrong in their lives. People with this view think that their sin is what's going to define them the rest of their life. That's the shame-filled view. Another view is the I'm better than others view, the hypocritical view. You're very quick to point fingers. I like to call it running from a bear view because as long as you're faster than the slowest person, you're good, right? And this is the hypocritical view. I may not be a good person, but at least I'm better than them. It's the hypocritical view. This is how culture usually views sin. These are the the ways they approach it. These are the ways they view it, and they're okay to kind of sit in these different views. But what we're going to learn today is that this is not how Scripture teaches about sin, and it's also not on how God views sin whatsoever. And so what we have to do today, we have to look at what sin is according to Scripture, God's Word. We're going to look at what sin does, and then we're going to see how God responds to sin And then ultimately, what God does about sin. And so hopefully you can track with me as we kind of survey some passages. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5. If you would want to turn in your Bible there, we're going to be there a lot at the end of this service. And so you can turn there uh, right now if you want. So let's look at the first part. What is sin? Let's define sin for what it is according to Scripture. Sin is very simply missing the mark. Missing the mark. To make it easy for you, you can kind of think of in an archery um, setting. All of us have hopefully tried archery before. And the goal is, is to shoot an arrow and hit the, the mark, the bullseye, right? I can remember as a kid when I would go to camp. My camp was awesome. They had archery, and I would do archery like every day. And if you got a bullseye by the end of the week, you got to go to this 3D archery range where they had like these fake animals all around up in trees and stuff, like panthers and like animals you wouldn't see, usually in the wild. And um, all week, I would try to get that bullseye. I never hit it. I never got to go to this 3D archery range because I kept missing the mark. In Scripture, sin is missing God's central bullseye. And we miss God's central bullseye in a word, deed, or desire that is in opposition of the eternal law of God. What this means is it means that anytime we feel, speak, or act in a way that goes against God and his eternal ways is sin. It's us missing the mark. 
This is what sin is. And let me tell you, we can try and we can try and we can try and we can try. But if you continually to try on your own, you will never hit the mark. I just want to lovingly tell you that today. And it becomes a very exhausting way to live, doesn't it? We just had a series on that. You can go and listen about the exhaustiveness of trying to control your own life. That's what sin is. Sin is simply missing the mark. And so what does sin do to us? What does sin, uh, what's the effect of us in our lives? And so sin is very destructive, isn't it? Sin is very destructive. So when we miss the mark, it's very destructive in our lives. Have we all felt that? Can we just all be honest today? We've all felt the destructive qualities of sin in our life, whether that be with God or whether that be with other people. When we sin, when we miss the mark, when we say, feel, or do anything that goes against what God may want for us, we feel that destruction. We feel the broken relationship. We feel the hurt. We feel the pain. We feel how we fall short. I'll be the first to admit, I've felt that. It's destructive. It destroys our relationship with God and our relationship with others. You see, we see this destructive aspect of sin all the way at the beginning of Scripture. Seth kind of mentioned it in, Acts, or in Genesis chapter 2, where God creates this everything, and it's good. He gives life to everything. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve disregard God and his word. And we see because of their disobedience, their sin, they then, their relationship with God was destroyed. And then they go on and experience destruction in their physical lives as well, in their relationships. And so that's where we see sin enter into this world, which is Genesis 3. But we don't actually see the word sin in the Bible until Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis chapter 4, we see God addressing sin with a man by the name, name of Cain. And maybe you know the story of Cain and Abel. And so let's read Genesis 4, 6 through 7 real quick, and then I'm going to tell you the context a little bit. Genesis 4, 6 says, Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain? Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. So just right off the bat here, there is a moral standard of what is right. Who dictates that moral standard? Well, of course, it's God. God dictates this moral standard of right, and he's talking to Cain, and he says, listen, if you live up to that moral standard of what is right, or in other words, if you obey me and my word, it's going to go well for you. But if you don't, watch out. Watch out. Why does God say watch out? Well, because sin, there's our word today, sin is crouching at the door eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. God says this to Cain right after Cain and Abel both bring offerings to God. And God accepts Abel's offering most likely because he brought the first fruits, as it says, meaning he brought the best right at the beginning. And Cain, it kind of seems like he brought what was left over to God. And in that moment, God rejects Cain's offering, but he accepts Abel. 
And so Cain becomes very angry at God. He becomes angry at God. Like, well, how, how dare you, God, accept his offering but not mine? And so God says this to Cain. He says, hey, watch out. Don't become angry. If you do, sin is going to be crouching at the door, waiting to pounce, waiting to control you in life. Do you think Cain just kind of walked away and said, okay, God, you're right? No. Cain is so angry at God. He's so jealous at Abel that he lures Abel out into the field and he kills him. And he kills him. You see, murder is a sinful action. We can all agree with that today. But you have to ask, what caused Cain to kill his brother? It's because Cain allowed sin to control him. Cain allowed that sin that was waiting to crouch at the doorstep, the the anger, the jealousy to take over who he is. It caused him to then act in such a way and kill his brother. It caused him to disregard God and his word and also to be in control of his own fate and to do what his own sinful heart desired. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Living life, disregarding God and his word, trying to control our own lives, and really, truly doing what our sinful hearts desire. That's what causes sin in our lives. You see what sin here does. It it utterly destroys our relationship with God, and it eventually destroys our relationship with people. You see that? Sin has utterly destroyed our relationship with God. There's this chasm now between us and God, but it eventually is going to destroy your relationship with people. Here's the sobering reality today. And this is, you're going to be so grateful you came to hear this. It's very sobering. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is our reality. This is what sin has done to us. It's caused us to fall short of what God expects of us. And none of us are better than the other. None of us are good enough. We have all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. Like Adam and Eve and Cain, our relationship with God is broken. We disregard God and his word, and our relationship with others is usually strained. But thanks be to God that he doesn't just leave us in that place. Amen? Thanks be to God that he doesn't just see us in our sin, the fact that we fall short of his glory and he say, well, good riddance to you. You guys are terrible. You guys are the worst. Good thing he doesn't look at us and say, you know what? I'm keeping track of everything and you failed, so get away. He doesn't say that. And so we see what sin is. It's missing the mark. We see what sin does to us in our lives. It causes uh, our relationship with God to be broken and it causes our relationship with others to be strained. So then you have to ask, how does God respond to this sin? He doesn't just kick us away, so how does he respond? And for us to see how he responds, we have to look at God's conundrum. God's conundrum, and we're going to see that in Hosea chapter 11. That's in the Old Testament. It's a phenomenal book back in the Old Testament. You probably 
maybe have never read it because a lot of people skip over those little guys in the back of the Old Testament. But you should go read it. Hosea 11 so great. And so we're going to read a little bit here. Hosea is a prophetic book where God is speaking to his people. So he's not speaking to humanity. He's speaking directly to his people. And he's addressing them because his people have been very unfaithful to him. Like, like a spouse being unfaithful to their spouse. And God uses a lot of different imagery in Hosea to really show Israel how unfaithful they've been. And here in Hosea 11, we see God addressing their unfaithfulness, but we also see God's heart in the matter. Because remember, this whole series is about God's heart. And so let's read Hosea 11, God's conundrum. It says, For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the most high, but they don't truly honor me. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma and, or demolish you like Zeboim? My heart is torn within me, but my compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel. For I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you, and I will not come to destroy. Can you see God's conundrum here in this passage? This contrast between Israel being unfaithful and yet God remaining faithful? You see, God desires his people to have an intimate faithful relationship with him, but yet they continue to be unfaithful. We see that here. They're determined to desert me. Have you guys ever been determined to do something before? Like coaches say it all the time. There's also like those posters, those motivational posters, like determination. This idea that you're just going to do this. Well, Israel is determined that they're absolutely going to desert God. That's what they're determined to do. They call him the Most High, meaning they give them him the name and the worship, but really, they don't truly honor him with their hearts. You see, this is what Israel is doing. They're unfaithful. They are calling on him only when they need something. How many of us have done that before? Life is great and dandy. We don't need God. Everything's going fantastic. And then something happens, and all of a sudden, what do you do? I need something, God. And then God maybe will bless you with what you asked for, and then all of a sudden, where are you at again? Doing everything without God again. That's nothing new. That's what Israel's doing, crying out to God only when they need something. Much like Cain, sin is ruling over them. Much like Cain, they are disregarding God and his word. Much like Cain, their anger and their jealousy are leading them away from God and destroying their relationship with others. And because of that, God's heart is torn within him. God's heart is torn within him. God could simply walk away from his people of their ingratitude and their dejection of him but it's not what he does, does he? He says, my heart is torn within me, but my compassion overflows. My compassion overflows. God's people fell short. 
They miss the mark, yet the compassion of God overflows. This is God's heart for you and for me today. Do you know that? Israel's unfaithfulness and stubbornness are not enough to exhaust the compassion and the love of God for them. And your unfaithfulness and stubbornness to God is not enough to exhaust God's compassion and love for you. And I love what Dane Orland says in his book. He says he simply cannot give them up. Nothing could cause him to abandon them. They are his. What father could bring himself to put up for adoption his beloved son just because his son messed up big time? What father's going to do that? This makes me think of the prodigal son where he runs off and does everything he wants to do with his father's inheritance That father does not say, well, good riddance. He's up for adoption. Go ahead. Anybody can have him. That son returns back in humility and says, you know what? I'm going to serve you as a servant. The father says, no way. You're my son. Let's celebrate that you're back. Do you see that? Makes me think of my son. My son's five. He messes up. The dude ran at me the other day trying to punch me. Like with anger in his eyes. I said, boy, you messed up. I, I didn't reject him, though. I didn't, I'm not going to put him up for adoption if he messes up. I'm his father. I love him unconditionally. I'm going to welcome him with open arms. Sure, we're going to have a talk after that. But absolutely, he is my son and he is mine. And this is how God feels about us. Our unfaithfulness, our stubbornness, the times where we do things that miss the mark, guess what? God doesn't just reject you. In fact, his compassion is going to overflow for you in that moment. And that's exactly how we need to see God in his heart. God absolutely loves you. God absolutely has compassion for you. That's what he does with this idea of sin. The same redeeming compassion and love that he was showing Israel is the same thing he shows us today. We've all messed up. We've all missed the mark. And sin rules our life sometimes. But the beauty is this. This is the beauty of the gospel. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice the implications here. While we were still sinners... So if you think you're the worst person ever and you don't think God could ever love you, guess what? While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. He didn't look at you and said, hey, I really am just going to sit here and wait till you get everything right, and then I'll die for you. No, it's in the midst of our unfaithfulness that Jesus came and he died for us. That's called unconditional love. That's called compassion. And ultimately, we're going to see in a second, that's called grace. Christ died for us while we were sinners. His love is reserved for sinners, and we sinners can never exhaust his redeeming love. That's God's heart for his people. So, so far we've seen what sin is. It's missing the mark. We see what sin does. It's very destructive in our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. And now we see how God responds. He doesn't respond in this dictator, I'm going to smite you type of way. He responds in a very compassionate, loving way for his people. 
But now how does he fix that sin problem? Because we have a sin problem. We'll all admit it. So how does he truly fix that sin problem? Well, let's see in Romans 5, 20 through 21. Which, by the way, if you've never read Romans chapter 5, go read it. It's life-changing, okay? God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. First of all, this is a blessing from God that he would reveal to us how sinful we are. And I'll tell you why in a second. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, so that's where sin leads, it rules over all people. And this is like the story of Cain. Sin ruled over him. And what did it lead to? Death. Abel's death. And ultimately Cain's. Sin brought them to death. And now God's wonderful grace rules instead. God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, we see here the reality that sin rules over all people. Because remember, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and brought them to death. That's where sin leads us. We all have this sin problem, but the grace of God is displayed through Jesus Christ our Lord, and grace through Jesus will rule us instead. This is how God deals with our sin problem, is that word grace. If you don't know what grace means, it means unmerited favor. The word unmerited, because we don't use that a lot, means undeserved, undeserved favor. Why is it undeserved? Romans 5, 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for those who missed the mark. Christ died for those who fell short. Do you guys see this grace? God shows us that grace, even in the midst of our sinfulness, grace is not deserved because we sinners are ungodly and we have missed the mark. But you know what? Jesus hits the bullseye for us. Jesus hits the bullseye for us. The bullseye that God has intended for us, guess what? Jesus hit it every single time. His perfection, his humility, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all of it. We receive, because of Jesus, we receive eternal life and a right standing with God. So through Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he hit that bullseye because we can't. And because of that, now when we have faith in Jesus, we are given this right standing with God, meaning our relationship with God has been fixed, it's been redeemed, and we also receive eternal life. What does sin lead to? Death. What does grace lead to? Life. That's what God did with sin. He met sin with grace, with unmerited favor. And it's this grace that rules our hearts when we have faith and trust in Jesus. And that's what we get to live in every single day, even though we still fall short in our daily life. I am not perfect by any means. I'll be the first to admit that I still fall short on a daily basis. But that's not what is ruling over me. It's grace that rules over me because I have faith in Jesus Christ. 
in Genesis, we see that sin leads to death, Adam, Eve, Cain, but here we see that grace leads to life, eternal life now and eternal life then. Now, you might be thinking like, wow, good thing I came to church today to hear how terrible I was as a person. But the reason why we're unpacking this word sin and how Jesus meets us in our sinfulness is because of what Erwin Lutzer said. He said, grace is not sweet until sin is bitter. Right? We're never going to fully understand grace and the sweetness of God's grace until we understand the bitterness of sin and the destructiveness of sin. I like how one person said that it's on the blackness of our sin that the love of Christ shines brightest. Kind of like stars. They're still there in the day. You just can't see them. But stars shine brightest on the, black drop, on the backdrop of space, right? Blackness. And that's exactly what the grace of God does. It shines forth on the, on the backdrop or the blackness of our sin. And so... Let's look back a little bit at these three views. I am a good person. This is a cultural view of sin. Well, listen, I'm here today to tell you that this is not even a thing, okay? Because Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has set the standard for us. We all fall short because of our sinfulness, okay? So this idea that good is good enough is not real. Good is never good enough, that's why Jesus came to be good for you, okay? And so, good is never good enough. Second, I'm the worst person ever. If you're on this side of things, you have to remember that it, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. My daughter, just the other day, she looked at me. She was doing something wrong. She probably hit her sister, ran out. She yelled at her, ran to her bed. She was crying. Before I even could say a word to her, she said, why does God love me? I sin so much. Right? Breaks your heart. And I was able to look at her and say, you know what? It's the same thing for me. I feel the same way, but I know that even though I'm a sinner, Christ died for me. That even though I'm the worst person ever, Christ died for me. And it's through his grace that he did that. So if you think you're the worst person ever and God's just this dictator who's out to smite everybody, that's not his heart. His heart is seen right here. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And if you think I am better than others, remember, Christ died for the ungodly, okay? So you're not better than others. We're... Christ died for those who fail. He, he died for those who don't measure up. And so you are not better than anybody else. In fact, you need to just start loving people the way Jesus loves people. Stop pointing fingers and walk with Jesus. And so Jesus meets ungodly sinners with undeserved favor, grace. Not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. I have two questions for you today as we close. First and foremost, are you aware that you have missed the mark? That's a question you have to come to grips with in your life. Because let me tell you, if you don't fully understand the blackness and the bitterness of sin, God's grace and his love towards you through Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection, that will never make sense. 
until you're aware of the blackness of your sin and how much you fall short. Are you aware of your sinful state? Second, if you are aware, I have to ask you, have you, if you're aware of your sin, have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who hit the mark for you, who gave his life for you, so that you may have eternal life, life now and life eternal. Have you placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior? Because that's the grace that God has given us. Even though we've missed the mark, Jesus did it. And because of Jesus, we can be redeemed. We can be reconciled. We can have life. And we can live with grace ruling over us instead of sin. Those are two questions that have eternal implications for you and for me. Eternal. So I'm not just, they're not just random questions. They have eternal implications. So make sure you ask those questions to yourself. I'm going to close today. Going back to Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. It says, Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest, life. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. That's who God is. He's humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Come to Jesus. He desires to have you. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the reality of grace. Lord, all the times I miss the mark, all the times I fall short, you continue